Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George. I'll be your host for our time together. Thanks so much for listening. And if you've been a subscriber to the show, thank you. If you have been passed this along to you, we'd love for you to sign up and subscribe. Our goal is to help make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. My goodness, there's so many resources out there. How do you cut through it all? How does it make sense for everyday life? That's what we're trying to do. And today, we're going to deal with something that a lot of leaders in churches and church leaders want to figure out, and that is, how do you make giving in your church a bit more simple? You see, the people in our churches, they don't have a problem with giving. They have a problem with giving to your church because they all get very generous around November, December. We all wanna do something that benefits other people. We also wanna do something that looks really good on our tax returns. So how do we do that? Well, it just so happens that the majority of us do that through our churches or other nonprofits. So if you're a church leader, how do you make sure that you're able to give a great option for people to give to what it is that you are doing that might benefit your year-end giving, might benefit your next year's ministry, and might impact the people in your community. Well, today we have a great conversation with an individual you may not have heard of named John Reinhardt. John wrote a book called Gospel Patrons years ago that details three different stories of the people behind the people that you may know, people that made strategic moves to leave a great impact in the world and for the kingdom of God. Behind them was a person that was financing the whole project. You may not know them, but I guarantee you have been affected by them. John takes a look at these gospel patrons that literally paved the way for ministry to happen and encourages those in our churches and ourselves to be gospel patrons ourselves. So I'm going to talk to him a lot about how do we make giving in our church a little bit more simple? How do we make it a little bit more exciting for people rather than us standing up, banging on the offering plate and asking to meet the daily needs? I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation together. Well, this month, we decided not to have a sponsor just so we could promote our Real Life Church Christmas services. And this particular year at Real Life, on the weekends, we are moving into one of our favorite series of the year called At The Movies. And this is a special one because it is Christmas at the movies. And so if you are listening to this at any time during the month of December, you're going to want to make sure that you tune in on the weekend to Real Life Church at 8.30, 10, or 11.30 on Pacific Time or Thursday night at 7 o'clock Pacific Time. Just tune in through our website, reallifechurch.org, and you can watch our At The Movies experience. Because of copyright rules, we cannot put it on demand where you can watch it later, so you'll have to watch it live. If you live within driving distance of one of our campuses, either in Lancaster, Valencia, or in Simi Valley, we encourage you to make your way over there for a day that you would not soon forget because of the great experience of using a Christmas movie to tell the Christmas story. I can't tell you the movies, but I can tell you they're all favorites and they're all great. We're going to do five of these starting the weekend after Thanksgiving, and then we're going to wrap it all up with the final one on our Christmas Eve service, December 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. We would love to have you as part of our service. Just join us, reallifechurch.org. Go to the app, find out more. You can download the app right now through the App Store. 
Well, so excited for Christmas, but also excited for my conversation with John Reinhardt. Here we go. Well, welcome to Leading Simple. I'm honored to have author, speaker, former college basketball player, extraordinary John <laughs> Reinhardt in the studio today, face-to-face. Normally, I'm on Zoom with somebody, so it's great to have you here. John, for our listeners that don't know who you are, tell us your story. Yeah, so I studied business in college alongside playing a little bit of basketball. Okay. And when I was done, I was asking the question, okay, what am I going to do? I got a job in sales and began the mountain climbing of paying off student loans. And that was, I know there's a lot of people who can relate with that. Right. And it just felt like, okay, I was solely focused on doing business, making money, paying off debt. I was on the 15-year plan and we prayed and prayed and prayed and uh-huh. God did it in 18 months. Paid it all off. Wow. Yeah. How did he do that? Well, Magical check in the mail? No, I was just, he blessed my sales. Honestly, I, okay. I got promoted four times in two years. I closed the biggest deal our office had seen in four years and he was just, his favor was all over it. What kind of sales were you in? Believe it or not, copier sales. <laughs> Copiers. So this is 90s, 2000s? Uh, this is 2003 to 2005. Okay. And I'm in Orange County, California. I have a territory of five cities. I'm knocking on doors every day, meeting business owners. Okay. Part of the tension was I was good at what I did, but as I'm meeting business owners, I wanted to talk to them more about spiritual things. I'd be sitting in their office, huh. getting to know them, and I just feel like, okay, we, I can help save them money. I can help make all of their documents go digital or get them better ways to print and copy, all that stuff. But I care, to, I care about them on a different level, but that's right. not why I'm here. Okay. And so anyway, I was aware of that in the midst of the journey, but once our debt was paid off, we threw a party for our friends. We called it a God's faithfulness party and said, <laughs> we're going to celebrate that God got us out of debt. And after that, I really went into a really interesting soul-searching season where I was, I was good at what I did. I knew how to make money. I got paid a hundred grand by, by the time I was 25, but I went, what's this for? Wow. We're living in Orange County. And the goal in Orange County and many other places around the country is to make as much money as possible so you can be as comfortable as possible, as secure as possible, as soon as possible, for as long as possible. Mm. I'm like, that's not a good goal. God didn't just make us to chase comfort and security. He made us for something more. And so I began to ask the question, why am I put on planet Earth? Mm -hmm. It's not just to get a bigger and bigger house, closer and closer to the beach, and a faster and faster car. What do you want me to do? Why did you make me? And for, for a while, I was looking, maybe I just need a different business job or a different uh, industry or mm-hmm. something in real estate was booming in California. Maybe I should just try that. But it always felt in my heart like, no, 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 no. Mm. Simultaneously, I'm wondering, are business people second class in God's kingdom? Because I'm good at this, but I don't feel deeply engaged in mm. the purposes of God. Yeah. And I, no one had ever told me that business leaders were second class in God's kingdom. Somehow I just absorbed that or Satan had lied to me. And I just thought that, and I didn't want to be second class. I didn't want to miss God's best for my life. Right. Well, I, I've got to take some of the blame for that. Cause I think all pastors have acted like our job is the holy one. Yeah. And right. you guys are out right. there slugging it out so you can tithe to make us do what we do. That's right. But that's not yeah. true. No, not at all. And yet it, very few voices say that right. and even acknowledge that and then say maybe there's another way. Right. 
So I left business, went to seminary at Talbot School of Theology for four years. Which is connected to Biola, right? Right, it's Biola Seminary. And okay. so I was intending to, I got the degree of a pastor, Master's of Divinity degree, which is the worst name of a degree in the history of the world. I'm the Master of Divinity. No, he's <laughs> my master. Anyway, it was four years of theology, you know, New Testament, Old Testament, Greek, Hebrew, preaching, pastoral ministry. And was finishing up that uh, degree, and I said to my wife, I asked my wife a question that changed the trajectory of our life, and wow. I had no idea this was about to happen. I just mm. thought I was asking a question. But she had continued her work in business and supporting me through seminary, so we didn't pick up any more debt. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that, I said, Renee, we've been chasing my dreams for four years. What's your dream? Mm -hmm. I don't want to miss her dreams. And out of her heart and out of her mouth rolled a, a sentence that, that really did change the trajectory of our life. She just immediately, with, almost without even thinking, just said, ever since I was 13 years old, I dreamed of traveling all the way around the world in a single shot in order to become a global Christian and to learn to walk by faith. Wow. She just had that in the chamber, just queued up, ready to go. I, I mean, it had been deep in her heart, <laughs> Oh man! but it wasn't that we had ever in our years of marriage even had a conversation about that. Wow. It just is what rolled out in the moment. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's a great dream. We're 29 years old. It's probably now or when we're 65. Let's yeah. do it now. Yeah. So we put all of our belongings in storage. She took a leave of absence from her work and we traveled the world for four and a half months, 132 days around the world with the goals of not just sitting on beaches and drinking margaritas and staying at five-star places, it was to become global Christians because God's not just the God of America. He's the God of the entire world, every nation, every tribe. Right. And then let's learn to walk by faith. So what that meant for us is we didn't book 132 hotel room nights before we left on the journey. We had the skeleton of our flights, but we were going to trust God to show us where he wanted us to stay. Sometimes that's you know, a miraculous provision, like we're on a train riding into Oslo, Norway, and had found out that almost all the hotel rooms in the whole city of Oslo were booked because it was a massive soccer match, a huge political rally, and one other big event that was basically taking over the city. Right. And we didn't have a place to stay. And so we're sitting on the train and we pray, God, would you provide our daily bread and our daily bed? <laughs> These two girls are sitting across from us on the train. They start whispering to each other. And then they turn to us and say, are you Americans? And we said, yes. And they said, well, we're Norwegians. And we just spent the last three months working with Americans on a discipleship training outreach. And we love how friendly Americans are. Can we talk to you? And we said, sure, of course. <laughs> and... Uh, through our time talking with them, um, they said, after we got off the train, they said, hey, want to go to coffee? We said, sure. And at the end of our coffee, they said, where are you staying in Oslo? And we said, we have no idea. And they said, well, good, good luck. God is good. Um, we have an extra bedroom in our apartment that's fully furnished, and our roommate's not going to arrive for another week. So stay as long as you want, and we've got a place for you. Wow. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So, so it was learning to trust God day by day. Sometimes we stayed at hotels, sometimes hostels, and just mm -hmm. it wasn't that we weren't going to pay for it, but we were going to trust God to show us where he wanted us. And I say it took about 80 days to learn to trust God and not be nervous. And after 80 days, we could look back and go, oh my goodness, in this country, in that city, in this place, he provided. He's faithful. I don't know where it's going to come from now, but I know he's going to provide. Wow. I, I, I want to just dial in on one thing. You traveled for four and a half months, but 75% of that was you learning how to trust? Yeah. I mean, that is incredible right there. I mean, that just sounds like a microcosm of our life, yeah. right? I mean, yes. you, you meet yes. older people and they like, they got it. Yeah. And it took him a long time. Right. So yeah. we're by, in good yeah, company. By God's grace, it, it, was, it was a masterclass in trust and in faith. What does it mean to be a global Christian? 
Yeah, I think what it meant is to see um, that, that God is working everywhere. Mm. And so for us, what, what that meant is we were trying to worship with local believers in their languages and in their context wherever we could, mm. and meeting Christians all over the world. And so not just traveling as a tourist, but traveling as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the best kind of travel, because when you meet brothers and sisters all over the world, you understand so quickly what the body of Christ means. Here we are, we're, we don't know each other compared to the stranger that I see on the street. Right. But we have this bond in Christ, and you welcome me into your culture, into your life, into your home, into your church, as you would a family member. And then that becomes, as then from the tourist side, that becomes an amazing entree into the culture, where I can ask a believer, what does this mean? What is that? Why, why do people do that? What, how does your culture work? How do you guys understand this? And all of a sudden, it's not just I'm seeing a few UNESCO World Heritage Sites, but I'm getting into <laughs> how people think, how they operate, why they do what they do, and what is the, what, what's going on in this culture. And I love to do that through the lens of meeting other believers. And then you get to see how they worship, and we got to pick up things all along the way, where people would ask me now, well, what denomination are you? And I say, well, it kind of depends on the day. <laughs> I mean, I could be Anglican, I could be Charismatic, I could be Presbyterian, I'm good with Baptists, Assemblies of God, we got, we're friends, you know, or some <laughs> denomination somewhere around the world I've never even heard of. It doesn't right. really matter. These are my brothers and sisters, they follow King Jesus, they love the Bible, they're open to the Holy Spirit, we're good. Yeah. Okay, so you do all that, you come back, and then you go to church, okay? Yeah, right. You're back in the American church, right, right. you know, three songs, message, three points, prayer and a poem, <laughs> out the door. How did you view church differently yeah. after that experience? Yeah, I think it's, it, there's, I guess I don't expect a, a single local church to embody all of those you know, yeah. unique aspects, yeah. kind of the unique facets. Right. I, I think we can appreciate with every local church that there's a unique grace of God on them to to bring out a facet or a couple of facets for the body of Christ. They're not going to do everything. Mm-hmm. I think what I've learned both with business leaders and with, with ministry leaders or pastors is that we always create something within our own image, just like God. God made us in his own image. So everything that we create is going to be in our own image. What that means for a church is that the, pa- the church is going to be a reflection primarily of the senior leader or senior pastor, hmm. and then the other pastors as well. And so it's going, to be, it's going to play to the senior leader's gifts, to his personalities, but also to his weaknesses. And so if you are a senior pastor who's an evangelist, your church is going to look very evangelistic, which might mean that you have a weakness in discipleship, in training, in raising up younger leaders. And in some sense, I'm okay with that. As long as we can acknowledge that's what it is, because you're creating it in your image. And if you can staff your weaknesses, do it. If you're in business and you can staff your weaknesses, do Mm. it. But whatever we create has to be within our own image. It's how we're we're made and how we're wired. And so I think to not expect every local church to do everything or to be everything, but to acknowledge the unique gifts and grace of the leaders, and that's what's going to be reflected in the body. What a great statement for all church members to hear that their church doesn't have to have everything. No. And a great, a great freedom statement for all pastors that you don't have to be everything to all That's people. Right. It's okay. This yeah. is who you are. That's right. Boy, I wish I'd learned that lesson a long time ago. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm going to fast forward a little bit sure, yeah. to gospel patrons. 
Yeah. What is this? How'd you find this? Well, okay. So this, uh, the reason I tell you this long story about our trip around the world, because that's where I discovered the idea of gospel patrons. Okay. I was on this trip asking the question, when I finish this trip and get back, do I go back into business because I know how to make money or do I do something in ministry because I just finished seminary? Felt like in one hand was business in the other hand was the kingdom of God. And I didn't think those things overlapped or connected very mm -hmm. often, very much. And I didn't know how, mm -hmm. but here I was in Sydney, Australia, meeting a friend of a friend who had been referred to me by a missionary friend friend of ours in India. And I was, we set up a time to meet for coffee and I was supposed to ask him about this idea called gospel patrons, which meant nothing to me at the right. time. Oh yeah. But he spoke a single sentence that again, changed the trajectory of my life. He said that behind every great movement of God, there are, are preachers, people who proclaim the word of God, teach the, and teach the gospel, spread the word. Um, and we tend to think of those people as lone rangers but they're not. The deeper we'd look into history, they've always been supported by mm. people who are gifted differently in starting businesses, making money, being mm -hmm. strategic, being generous, coming alongside others in partnership. And when God brings together those who are the gospel preachers or proclaimers and those who are the gospel patrons, mm. he does extraordinary things. Mm. And he told a few historical stories about how God has always used those behind the scenes, generosity leaders, business leaders as gospel patrons. Yeah, That lit me up and it fused those two pieces of my calling in a way I had never seen before. Now you finally see it. No, you can be in ministry and business. That's right. Interesting. That's okay. Right. Yeah. And I, I was so excited about the idea when we got home from that trip around the world, we began telling other people and they were electrified by it. And I went, okay, I think God's in this. We've all been lied to. Yeah, what, what do we do now? <laughs> and so the short story is out, out of that, I asked him to write a book called Gospel Patrons. And it ended up that I wrote a book called Gospel Patrons okay. to tell those historical stories, some biblical examples, and a call to action for what it looks like for those who, aren't, who are never going to work in ministry, never going to get a paycheck from a church or a charity, yeah. but to say, you're not second class. You have an amazing part to play. Right. And God has designed you for this. I, I love that for, for this simple reason. I have met so many Christians that feel like working at a church is the pinnacle of spiritual growth. Mm. And they leave the marketplace to go into the ministry field and realize, I hate this. Yeah. This is really hard, or it's not my, my sweet spot, my skill set. It would have been a whole lot better had they just stayed in the marketplace, evangelized their friends there, That's right. and made money to fuel ministry. That's you right. know, yes. That would have been a great... And they would have loved that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Yeah. And I'm not setting my story up as, as an example of you ought to leave business in order to go into ministry. I think God had me uniquely right. do this to capture this vision that then now I could be a mouthpiece for business leaders, but also a servant to pastors and church leaders to right. say, here's how this works. Here's a way that God works. Right. Right. You're in the middle of those two concentric circles. Right. So I don't know which I am. Venn diagram, I'm a business I guess. guy or am I a ministry guy? I kind of sit on the fence and I love both sides. Yeah. Try to connect them. Years ago, a friend said to me that one of Satan's main tactics is to keep people with resources and people with vision separate. Wow. And I always found that very insightful huh. because when we look in scripture, the thing that Jesus prayed for is that we would be one. Yeah. And the thing that Paul is constantly celebrating is it's a body with diverse members, but we're meant to grow together into right. maturity to be one. And what we find all the time in scripture and in life is that when God's people operate in unity yeah. and in oneness, there's multiplication. He does extraordinary things when we stay united. And yeah. so it's such a huge call to say, you don't have to be someone else. You get to be you. 
but be you for the glory of God. Be you not just to build your kingdom, be you for his kingdom. Use your gifts for his name, not your name. Use your wealth for his kingdom, not just your personal kingdom. When that happens, God just does extraordinary things. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's been freeing for many professional leaders, business leaders I've talked to around the world to finally mm-hmm. get to go, oh, so I'm good at being a lawyer. I'm amazing at real estate. I'm an ER doctor, or I'm a yeah. nurse, or I'm an entrepreneur or a financial advisor. And that's good. And I go, yes, that's how God made you. But do that for the glory of God. For the glory of God. Oh, that's so good. How do you, how do you balance that? This, I mean, especially if you're your type A personality, you're a, a three on the Enneagram or a one or whatever, you know. Uh, and, and certainly even the male mindset is a little bit more conquest driven. Mm-hmm. How do you operate in the business realm and work really hard at that next deal and succeeding and all of that without letting it become an idol. Mm. And now, and now it's no longer for the glory of God. It's for the glory of you. And yeah. truthfully, pastors can do this as well. They, they chase numbers and buildings yeah. and those That's kind of right. things. Right. How have you seen the, the, the way to kind of balance that? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. We're always going to be tempted with pride and mm-hmm. selfishness and building our kingdoms and building yeah. our names. But I have seen that many business leaders who are very, very successful um, have found the the framework and the calling of being a gospel patron as a huge motivator for their success in their careers. Because at a certain point, once you get your house and you get kind of your life set up, the next deal, you don't need it. It's not going to change your lifestyle all that much. You can might yeah. you might be able to build a bigger barn and stockpile some more money. Mm-hmm. But I've seen business leaders go, I, I have enough. I could retire already, but I'm staying in the game as a, because I'm motivated to get this next deal, close this next investment round, whatever, and use that for God's glory. I'm mm. motivated. This is what this is why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. It's not for me. It's not for my lifestyle. It's for for His kingdom. And so I, I think there's a sense of. Um, stewardship, that we're not the main, main thing that we all need to understand again and again with money is it's not ours. Mm-hmm. And for pastors with churches, the people aren't yours. Mm-hmm. You're an under shepherd under the king, mm-hmm. and he brings the people for a season. And mm-hmm. sometimes they move or switch churches, or do, but they're, they're never yours. Mm-hmm. And we're not meant to be grasping people. We're meant to be really open-handed people, whether it's in business or in ministry. If we have open hands and we allow God to bless us that we might be a blessing, we allow mm-hmm. him to give to us that we might give to others, it keeps us in a place of tons of joy and lots of freedom, and we're open to however, like Job, he mm. gives and he takes away, but blessed be his name. Mm. That should be a song. If only I thought of that. Yeah, really. Okay, tell us some classic stories of gospel patrons throughout history. All right, I'll do the short version, so okay. that if you're interested, you can get the audiobook and listen to my voice for three hours, tell the long <laughs> version, or you can buy the book and, and read it. Did you enjoy reading uh, the audiobook? I did. It was fun. We recorded at a studio in Burbank, actually, okay. where lots of these huge hit records were, and we could oh, only get access to the cool. studio late at night. Um, and so it was like 11 to 4 a.m. of us reading into a mic that was worth more than my life. Um, and But we got it done, and it's been really effective. So, um, And I, the reader makes all the difference in an audiobook anyway. It does. So, uh, okay, so gospel patron stories. Well, I'll tell you three, three quick ones. The, the one that's captured the most momentum in, uh, is the fact that in the, the English Bible would not have existed without a gospel patron. There was a Bible translator in the 1500s in England named William Tyndale who had a passion to translate God's word from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, into English for the first time in history. Mm -hmm. Only problem was Bible translation was illegal 
think about how crazy that is. Right. But in, the, in, that, in that day, they thought of Latin as the exalted language, and so the Latin Vulgate translation was elevated, despite the fact that language had evolved and people were not speaking Latin in their homes or in their businesses. They're speaking German, Portuguese, Spanish, Italian, French, English. Right. And all of a sudden, this young guy says, I want to give God's word to my people mm. in their language. He came from a family of merchants, so he understood that they didn't know Latin. But he had been to Oxford, was gifted with languages, and wanted to give them God's word. And so he took a risk and sought permission from the church leaders in London that maybe they could bypass the law. They didn't want to do it for him. And so six months later, God raised up a cloth merchant. Cloth was very, very big business back in the day. A guy named Humphrey Monmouth that the world has totally forgotten, who funded William Tyndale, housed him while he translated the Bible from Greek, from New Testament, from Greek into English and then even used his merchant ships to get the Bibles printed in the European continent, smuggled back into England in secrecy, and distributed, which birthed the English Reformation. Mm. The patron, the business guy, was imprisoned for a year, think about that, for funding William Tyndale. William Tyndale gave his life to give us an English Bible. He died at 41 years of age as a martyr. Uh, I, but, what they, but what they launched together changed changes my life every day. Every Bible that you've ever read in English finds its headwaters in two guys, William Tyndale and Humphrey Monmouth, a business mm. leader coming alongside a Bible translator. That's why we have an English Bible. Mm. That's humbling. So, yeah, absolutely. And they suffered mightily for it, and yet they didn't get to see the ROI in this life. <laughs> but there's 600 million or more English speakers now who have access to God's Word in their heart language because of two guys. Wow. Second story. Amazing. Um, a couple hundred years later, that English Bible became a dusty book on many people's shelves rather than being the active living Word of God that it was when it exploded in the English Reformation. And uh, it's kind of the Victorian era of England and lots of licentiousness, lots of entertainment, lots of um, a lack of concern for the poor, and just people using, again, what they had earned for themselves. Mm -hmm. And God raised up this young, amazing preacher whose voice was like thunder and his preaching was like lightning, a guy named George Whitfield, to be this uh, ambassador to his generation, to <laughs> speak to them this old, these old truths from the English Bible, these old truths of the gospel. Well, he didn't feel called to be a local church pastor. He was a traveling evangelist, predating Charles Spurgeon, predating Billy Sunday, predating Billy Graham. He was a, an itinerant evangelist, mm. and yet he needed support for that. And there was a wealthy aristocratic woman whose husband had recently passed away, leaving her the sole heir of vast wealth and vast estates. And Lady Huntington was her name, and she heard Whitfield preach. She had become a recent convert to Christianity in her, her mid-30s, and she was asking God, What's my part to play? Mm. How could I serve you? Which I just think is a great question for all of us to ask. Lord, what is my unique gift? What's my unique part to play? And Lady Huntington uh, walked among the crowds as George Whitfield was preaching to the poor, and she watched their tears over their conviction of sin and heard their cries for repentance and faith in Jesus. Mm. And she went, this is real. I got to get behind this guy <laughs> and I got to get behind a whole lot of preachers in my generation. Yeah. So she leveraged her wealth and her influence to not only support George Whitfield as he preached to 
thousands, literally 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people live, no microphone, no amplification, preaching outside in the inclement weather, and she was funding him. But then she held, held a private chapel on her estate, invited all the wealthy aristocrats to come, and they would never go hear a guy like that preaching to the masses. But she said, come and hear him in my, in my drawing room. And she mm. would just unleash, unleash George Whitfield to preach to the wealthy lords and ladies and aristocrats of London. <laughs> and so here he's reaching both <laughs> sectors of society, and this is birthing what in England was called the evangelical uh, revival, but in America was known as the Great Awakening. Oh, my. Before he passed away, Whitfield had preached 18,000 sermons, mm. and he had preached to, I think, more than 10 million Americans live before America was ever a nation. He was more famous than the King of England, and when he would roll into town and preach at 5 a.m., people would close their businesses, they would leave their you know, farm, farm work, and they would come here and preach for two hours outside. Mm. It was just a phenom, and she got behind him, and not only did she get behind him, she got behind a whole generation of preachers founding a seminary, developing these chapels to make sure this message of the gospel could be heard. She did, did what it took to the point of even selling some of her uh, jewelry, right? She wasn't just giving out of what was easy. It was tough. Yeah. And I, I think we see that in the book of Acts, people selling what they had to say, this, this message really matters. And when God's moving, I, I don't want to I don't want to miss my chance to get behind it. Wow. Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second to remind you this Christmas, check out one of our Christmas services, reallifechurch.org for service times. Love to see you there. Now back to the show. Third story. Uh, in 1787, a new hymn book was launched into the world called Only Hymns. And uh, there's, you know, Lots of famous and amazing hymns in that, but hymn number 41 was called Faith's Review and Expectation. How about that for a name? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of things rhyme yeah, with those words. Yeah. And uh, this, this new hymnal was launched because there was a country church pastor named John Newton who was preaching to two or 300 people, mostly lower income farmers, lace workers, bricklayers, that kind of thing. But he was also writing theologically robust hymns for his congregation as another mechanism of teaching them the truths mm. of God's word. And he became friends with the foremost businessman in London. And these guys wrote letters back and forth to one another every two weeks. I've held those letters in my hand, 186 letters from the Cambridge University archives, had to put on white gloves and get past all this, you know, security essentially to be able to hold these letters in my hands and transcribe them. And these guys exchanged letters. They became really good friends. And they, in the letters, John Newton would send this business guy named John Thornton, he would send him some of the hymns that he wrote. Mm. Just as scribbled on the bottom of his letter, hey, this is my New Year's hymn. Hey, this is my Easter hymn. Hey, this is my Christmas hymn. Well, the business guy, John Thornton, said, these are pretty good. If you would be at the trouble of compiling these and putting these into a hymnal, along with your buddy William uh, Cooper, who was also writing hymns, um, I'll be at the expense. I'll buy the first thousand copies. I'll pay for the printing, and we'll, I'll distribute them among my wealthy and influential friends in London, which mm. he did. The hymn book didn't really take off in England, honestly, but when it jumped across to America uh, and they found hymn number 41, Faith's Review and Expectation, they decided to change the name to the first two words of the hymn, which are Amazing Grace. <laughs> we never would have heard of or sung the hymn Amazing Grace if there wasn't a business leader, a gospel patron named John Thornton, again, who's been behind the scenes in the world's almost completely mm. forgotten, saying, this is good stuff. 
This is worthy. Mm. I'll invest. I'll give. Let's go. Wow. Those are amazing. <laughs> That's what I thought when I first heard them. Like, these got to be in a book. Right. Somebody has to tell these stories. And it found out it was me. So you put these in a book and you get these out there. And what's been the response? It's been incredible. I feel like I'm riding the biggest wave that I've ever seen and just trying to stay on the surfboard. Yeah. Like God's been really, really good because I think people are hungry for, we all want our lives to make a difference. Yes. We all want, we, nobody wants to waste their life. Right. But how does that fit if you're not going to work for a church or you're not going to preach sermons for a living or you're not called to be a missionary? What does that look like? Mm-hmm. And I think for all of us, we can connect with people both in scripture, but then in history who've played these roles before us and say, wow, maybe my life could look a little bit like that. And mm-hmm. I think it's flipped the script where a lot of times people come to church and they expect the pastor to do all of the work of the ministry and they'll applaud and they'll show up and they'll give and he's the hero. Right. And instead, I think these stories flip the flip the script so that the gospel patrons get to be the heroes too. Yeah. They make incredible things happen. Mm-hmm. And the pastor's a partner with them in that, but he's equipping them for their role in ministry. Mm-hmm. They get a chance to um, probably increase his voice, his reach, the ability um, to get to the people who need the message the most. Mm-hmm. So we've seen incredible generosity. We've seen people catch fresh vision for their lives. I spoke to some pro athletes last week, and they were catching this message for the first time. Uh, we've spoken to people all over the country, all over the world, who are, whether they're 20 or 75, going, wait, <laughs> I could be a gospel patron? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a vision for your life. It's a vision for your life in light of eternity. Mm. Um, And you can jump in at any point, any stage, any age, any place of where you're at wealth creation wise. It's not a, there's not a financial ticket for where, you know, how you get into this party. Yeah. Let me ask about that because I imagine there's some listeners thinking, boy, that's cool if you got a lot of resources. Mm. And if I was a professional athlete or if I hung out with the wealthy of the, uh, you know, of London, I might be able to pull that off. Yeah. But what would you say to somebody out there that's like, listen, I'm a single mom, uh, just struggling to make it through, or I'm a plumber, or I'm a blue-collar worker working seven days a week. Can they be a gospel patron? Absolutely. And I would say you can't afford not to. Mm. Um, I think otherwise, Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, thieves do not break in and steal. Don't store it up on earth because Mm -hmm. those things happen. It breaks Mm. down. I think you can't afford not to give because what happens when we don't give is our hearts get anchored to earth mm-hmm. and they're meant to be elevated to heaven. Mm-hmm. That's where God wants our hearts, our mindsets to think on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, Colossians 3 says. Mm. When we give our money, we direct our hearts. And you might be able to do more if you have more, but mm. we're also called to be faithful with little mm. so that we're ready and prepared to be stewards of much. And so I think give what you can give now. Don't, don't wait. Don't make excuses. Don't tell yourself you'll give later when you get more money because there's later never comes. Uh, don't tell yourself you'll give more when the big ticket comes in because you won't if you're not giving now. No. Jump, in, jump in right now where you are. Begin to support your church. Give generously to your own local body. And then jump in and ask God, who else could I get behind? Pastors, mm. missionaries, ministry leaders. Ask them the question. Be proactive. What would be a game changer for your ministry? How can I be involved? Mm. You may not be able to meet the whole need. But maybe you can pray. Maybe you can rally other people to come mm-hmm. around it. And who knows what God would do? Those are some of the best stories of people that have come up around, around our church and said, hey, 
how can we help out beyond just you know tithing? Yeah. And I'll give them a project and they'll say, mm, okay, that's a big ask, but no. I'm gonna get my small group involved and we'll all do it together. It. And they it. all pitch in resources or they all go renovate somebody's house mm. or they all go on a mission trip together. And it's mm. now it's a joint effort that's right. that well, changes their lives. And the only person Jesus ever praised for generosity was a woman who had two copper coins left. Right. He's the only one she ever praised. And he says she put in more yeah. than those who had much. Right. So his math somehow is different than our math. <laughs> it's based on sacrifice. It's based yep. on faith. It's not just based on the size of the check. Okay, so let's talk about pastors for a second, because we've already ratted them out. That I sometimes, love pastors. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes we think uh, you know there's ministry, then there's business, and never do, the two shall meet. And fortunately, that idea is going away. I think over the last 20 years, we've been figuring this out. It's been a whole lot better to, to communicate that. My question is this. A lot of pastors have to talk about money, and Jesus talked about money more than anything else. So we need to talk about money, but we feel so ill-equipped to talk about it. Or we feel like, ah, listen, you make a lot of money, so you understand money. I don't, so I'm not somebody I should be giving advice to you. What do pastors and churches typically get wrong when they talk about money? Well, I mean, I, I get it. I went to seminary. We never had a class on money. No. Which is ironic because Jesus talked about it 25% of the time. Right. And we never talked about it. Right. So I went to Bible school, never came up. I went to a great Christian university and went to a business program in that great Christian university. We never talked about money, generosity, mm -hmm. stewardship. Um, I'm not blaming them. I'm just saying this is a conversation that many people haven't ever had before. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'll give you five quick things that I think pastors get wrong. Number one, they just avoid the subject mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. It's awkward. I feel ill-equipped. There's people in the congregation who make more than I do who understand this stuff better. So I, who am I? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of those doubts and lies. Um, so I think the first mistake pastors make is just to avoid talking about it. Mm -hmm. The second mistake a lot of pastors make, and, and I don't know if they're the ones listening to this podcast or not, but <laughs> is to talk about money in a wrong way, which I would say is a prosperity gospel way. The quickest way for me to summarize what the prosperity gospel is, is money is the goal and God is the means. Money is the goal and God is the means. Interesting. That's really good. The truth is God is always the goal. He's the end goal. It's we want to go to heaven, not because we'll never die. We want to go to heaven, not because there will never be any pain and suffering there. We want to go to heaven because God is there and he's our greatest treasure and he's the one we're living for. And so God is always the goal. He's never the means to get other goals, especially earthly goals. Mm. And so it's wrong to teach on giving in a way that would say, if only you had enough faith or if only you trusted God, you would be really, really rich. Mm. That makes money or prosperity the goal. It's not the goal. Mm -hmm. It's the means. That's the second mistake. Third mistake, I think when pastors do talk about money, they can be shy, timid, or even intimidated. Mm -hmm. I think that's totally the wrong approach. Mm -hmm. When Jesus talked about money, it was some of his fiercest language. Mm -hmm. Think of it the, when he's talking about the parable of the guy who built the bigger barns, the rich fool. Jesus, I just picture him looking at these people saying, he would be called, you fool. <laughs> yeah. Not like, hey, that was pretty bad, or you know, you could have done something different. <laughs> so he says, you fool. Or when he's talking to the Pharisees about how they're grabbing hold of money and they did love money, he calls them hypocrites. You brood of vipers. Yeah. Wait, wait, you're handling money wrongly. You're using people to get money. 
That's horrible, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we ought not to be timid. I, I wrote a poem that's on our website, gospelpatrons.org, called Pastors, Please Talk About Money. Mm. And, and one of the things I call for them is, is don't, don't tiptoe around, bang on the door, kick it open. Let us see that this really matters. Let us see that our hearts are attached to our treasure. Yeah. So I, I would say um, we, we ought not to be timid. Um, Jesus wasn't shy about talking about money. Third mistake, mm. or sorry, fourth mistake I think pastors can make in talking about money is to talk about it only in December. Mm. <laughs> when there's an ask, when it's year end, when it's let's meet the budget, let's fill it up, when there's a need. Mm-hmm. I think that's a mistake. What that says is we're only going to talk about money when there's a transaction that's needed mm-hmm. rather than a discipleship conversation. This is a core discipleship issue. If we don't understand how attached our hearts are to money, we'll avoid talking about it and we'll talk about kids and parenting and sex and everything else, that culture, and how we engage all those things. There's only one thing that Jesus says where this is, there your heart will be also. Mm. Only one thing. Mm -hmm. There's only one thing that he says, you cannot serve God and money, Mm. mammon, wealth. Only one thing. Mm -hmm. If we miss money and we only talk about it in a transaction phase, we're missing the discipleship core of what it means to to be a follower of Jesus Mm. on a heart level. Fifth make, mistake we make is we talk about budgeting more than biblical teaching. We talk about money in terms of budgeting and financial stewardship, mm-hmm. which is not a bad thing, but it's not a biblical right. thing. Right. Jesus never taught about budgeting. He mm-hmm. didn't. Is budget a wise idea? Sure. But it's not biblical. <laughs> yeah. So let's not make our financial conversations worldly wisdom. Mm-hmm. even if it's true, mm-hmm. versus biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Pastors, you know the Bible. You've been trained in the scriptures. So don't be intimidated by the financial advisors or the you know, really wealthy people in your congregation who have all this other worldly training in wealth. You've got scriptural training. You know what God says about it. Say that. Mm-hmm. They don't expect you to say all of the what the markets are doing and how to invest. Nobody cares what you think about that. They don't. <laughs> they really don't. What we want to know is what does God have to say? Does heaven have an idea of how I should use my wealth? Does, does, does the God of heaven have anything to say? Yes. Mm-hmm. Say that. Mm-hmm. Say that. And you won't be making a mistake. Mm-hmm. Those are the five things. People avoid it. They talk about it badly, like prosperity, gospel teaching. They're shy and timid. They only talk about it in December when there's a transaction or a need. And they talk about it in terms of budgeting rather than biblical thinking, mm. biblical training. That's so good. Okay, so what advice would you give all churches right now during December about how to engage your in givers so it's more than just a transactional thing? Mm. Well, I, I think for one, I would say you need to model trusting God with finances. Mm. You need to be the model of that. So when you talk about money, you're never going to put pressure on a person to meet your needs. Scripture is filled with the amazing realities that God owns everything. Mm-hmm. Not only the cattle on a thousand hills, it's Haggai talks about he owns the silver and the gold. Mm-hmm. Daniel talks about Belteshazzar's breath is in God's hands. Mm-hmm. He owns every, every, everything, and he distributes it to his people. Psalm 104, the young lions look to him for their food, and he meets their needs. Mm-hmm. The ravens of the field, he knows the birds of the field, and he feeds them. Mm-hmm. How much more will he provide for us? How much more does he value us? We need to take these truths and let them sink in really deeply as pastors and ministry leaders. Mm. We sometimes um, expect other people to meet our needs um, and or meet the needs of our church or our ministry. 
And we miss the big truth that God is our capital P provider. Hmm. We have to let that sink in deep so that whenever we talk about money, there's no sense of pressure. It's mm -hmm. all opportunity. If you're appealing to people within your congregations to give and they don't give, guess what? God's going to find another way. He's yeah. going to find another way. And they'll miss out on the blessing. They'll miss out on the eternal reward. They'll miss out on the partnership. They'll miss out on having their hearts anchored up to heaven rather than anchored down to earth because they didn't give. Right. And so we need to settle that. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's a one-time settling thing, but we're continually settling in our hearts that whenever we talk about money, we're going to talk about it, talk about it from a place of deep trust in God as our provider. No mm. pressure, all opportunity. That's point number one. When you talk about it, put no pressure, all opportunity. Mm -hmm. Number two, um, I think instead of appealing just to people who've never given um, to give and be involved, we should creatively thank the people who are currently giving. Mm. We see that Paul does this. The whole book of Philippians is a fundraising thank you letter. <laughs> it is. I never thought about that. We've gotten those from missionaries or people who go on short-term trips. They write back to tell you what they did. That's what Philippians is. I want to yep. thank you from verse 5 as a, for your partnership in the gospel. He closes out in, ver in chapter 4 saying, you have partnered with me in giving and receiving. You're the only church that entered in. Thank you. Not that I needed the gift, but I wanted to increase, you know, the you know the fruit that increases to your credit. That's mm -hmm. what Philippians is, with a lot of amazing theology mixed in the middle. Mm -hmm. I think the more we thank the people who are currently giving, the more they feel valued for their role, and the more they jump in with us again. Mm -hmm. uh, so find ways to creatively thank them. Let me just put a personal plug, not a biblical thought here. Personal plug: Don't give them church merch to thank them. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need any more coffee cups. Oh, man. Guilty. I, no, okay. We don't need more coffee cups. We don't need any more T-shirts. We don't need any more hats with the church logo on it. Uh, buy them a really nice bar of chocolate. Buy them a bag of pasta and pasta sauce. Get them a cool handwritten card. Send them flowers. Do something that's not church merch. Do something that's human to human. Mm. Thank you. Thank that's you. really good. This meant something to me. That's really this good. This meant something to us. This meant something to our mission. Get them something they would actually want or use, um, not just another copy of your book. Yeah. You know, uh, find creative ways to to humanly thank the people who are your your givers and who contribute. Third, um, years ago, someone said to me, "You know why people give?" And I said, "No, why?" And they said, "Because someone asked." <laughs> Number one reason people give is because someone asks. If people don't know you have needs, yeah. they won't be able to step up and meet those needs. Sometimes the Holy Spirit drops that on a giver's heart where they meet a need they didn't even know was a need. Most of the time people need to know there's a need. Mm -hmm. But we don't pressure them to meet our needs or the needs of our church. We invite them. It's all invitation. It's all joy. So I would say be honest about the fact that you've got needs and mm -hmm. your church has needs and your staff has needs and your mm -hmm. dreams for what you think God's going to do are going to take needs. Um, because God is our provider, but God's primary way of providing is through people mm -hmm. who step out in faith and choose to give. Mm -hmm. That's how God meets those needs. And so we're going to be honest <laughs> about those needs without a sense of pressure. I would also, in December, I would be honest as a pastor about the percentage of your budget that normally gets met in December. So people feel a little bit of the weight of that. Let's say that 70% of your giving happens uh, you know, January through November, and 30% happens in December. 
great. Tell people that. Hey, mm-hmm. we know that you're busy. We know that lots of you are traveling. We know you got trips. We know you got business, kids, all that stuff. And so giving is probably not always on the forefront of your mind to mm. nonprofits, but it tends to bubble up to the surface for all of us in December. So we want you to know that 30% of our church giving happens in December. We'd love you to be a part of that. If you've missed it for 11 months because you're new to the church or mm. you've never given or you just hasn't been on your radar, that's fine. Be, join us in December. Help us close this year out strong and be in a great position to start the new year. That's in that good. way, there's no guilt. There's no pressure. You just acknowledge where people are at and give them an invitation to, to be involved. And they, they kind of expect, oh, this happens in ministry. We get that. Yep. Jump in, be involved. Yeah, and it is a time of the year when everybody else is trying to do that through their nonprofits as well. So they're used to... Yep, they get the letters in the mail. They get all the letters, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they, they understand that. Okay, yeah. so we want to break out of just December only. Yeah. Give our church leaders um, a few things that they could do to make sure this is more of a, a an annual or, or year-round kind of a process of ministry development. Yeah, I I would start by saying we need to remember that Romans 12 talks about giving as a spiritual gift, Mm -hmm. not just teaching, not just exhortation or mercy or helps or any of those things. Giving is a spiritual gift that Mm -hmm. God gives. So my question would be, how could you empower, equip, strengthen those within your body that have that gift? Mm -hmm. If the answer is nothing... Let's change the answer to something. (laughs) You don't have to do everything, but we should do something. Right. So what would be a goal you could go after for 2023 or whenever you listen to this, whatever the next year is going to be, to say, I want to do something to equip people who have the gift of generosity. Mm-hmm. I, I want to train them. If people have the gift of teaching, we'll find ways for them to serve. If people have the heart to volunteer with kids, oh, we'll plug them in for sure. Yeah. If they're worship leaders, there's a pathway for them to get involved. But if they're gifted in giving and generosity, what do they do? Mm. They sit there and they feel alone most of the time. Mm-hmm. They're isolated most of the time. They don't really want to tell people that they have a gift because they're afraid people will misuse or abuse that knowledge mm-hmm. of the fact that they are gifted in giving. I would say let's let's acknowledge that there is a gift of giving. Let's acknowledge it publicly in front of the church. This is a gift. Read the verse in Romans 12. This is a gift that God gives. What we're looking to is disciple, train, empower the people within our church who have that gift. And some of those people might have a lot of money because mm-hmm. God tends to bless people with that gift so that just as he does with pastors, he gives them wisdom, insight, teaching so they can be generous with it to others. He does mm. the same with wealth. He gives people who have the gift of giving wealth so because he knows he can trust them to release it. To be generous. And so I would encourage you to, to acknowledge the gift, mm. invite people to um, maybe a quarterly event where you can show a video from gospelpatrons.org and start a conversation, mm-hmm. where you could give them a copy of a book. Um, God and Money is a great book. Gospel Patrons is a great book. Um, the Gift and the Giver is a great book. Um, to start the conversation, begin to put tools and resources in front of them to develop their gifting. Mm-hmm. Then I would put vision and opportunity in front of them. Now, there's a little tension here because I know a lot of pastors think, well, if they give to other things that's out of our church, is that okay? Yes, it's okay. If you only ask them ever to give to your church or only expect them ever to give to your congregation, you're going to limit their generosity. Mm. Some of these people have so much more capacity. They could fund your entire church budget for a year by themselves. They're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And so if we only tell them to give to the church, you're going to limit their gifting. And instead, we want to say, we hope and trust that as we equip you here, we'll bring needs to our church and vision to our church of things you can uniquely be involved in. And we hope you give to things that God additionally has on your heart. Some of you are fired up about missions. 
and you're going to give to missions organizations or missionaries that are not connected to our church, awesome. Do it. Bless them in that. Some mm-hmm. of you love Bible translation, and there's a super amazing movement in our generation happening with finishing the translation of God's Word mm. in all 7,000 languages on planet Earth. Give to that. Do it. Or you know someone who's starting a church in another place or starting a ministry or your son or daughter is doing whatever. Yes, get behind it. Bless them to give everywhere and trust that the overflow will bless what God needs you to do within your own congregation. Don't mm. try to restrict them just to, with a scarcity mentality to just give to your church because you're going to hold them back from their gifting and I think also from their generosity to your congregation. So is that a little bit of the, the answer or the question I had in my mind is, okay, I know how to develop somebody who has a gift of teaching. I know how to develop somebody who has a gift of music, and that is to empower them to <laughs> talk with somebody who has a gift right. of music. Yes. But I mean, they could, they could learn a different instrument. They could learn how That's to right. sing better. They That's could right. write songs. Yep. What does it look like to develop the act of giving? Because I think historically all the church has done is, okay, you have the, act, the gift of giving, here's some more things to give to, mm-hmm. or could you move to recurring giving now? Yes. Um, but what does it look like to develop that? Is that, is, is that to give them other opportunities even outside the church? Is that what you're saying? I, I think that's, that's a part of it, but I think another part of it is to put, put before them examples, vision, and resources of what it looks like to grow in, in their gifting. And so it's partly been my calling for the last decade to create those examples, mm-hmm. to tell stories to do interviews of other gospel patrons in other places Mm. all over the world and putting those examples before the body of Christ. There's a mistake that we've made, and I think it's probably well-intentioned, but theologically, uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, don't let your right right hand know what your left hand is is giving. Mm -hmm. And we've said we should never talk about giving. Mm-hmm. because of that, because we don't want to lose our reward because those things that are done in secret, your father rewards, but those things that are done for hypocritical motivations to be seen, you lose your reward. Mm-hmm. I think it's a misunderstanding of that passage of the Bible, because in the very same sermon, just a chapter earlier, Jesus says, let your good works shine, <laughs> let your light shine before men, mm-hmm. that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Mm -hmm. Same sermon. Contextually, we need to understand there's times to talk about giving and there's times not to. Mm -hmm. And most of that's based on our heart motivation. Mm -hmm. If we're doing it to gain glory for ourselves, we'll lose our reward. Mm -hmm. If we're doing it to give glory to our Father in heaven, we're good. And so what we've tried to do is tell stories of generous people and the various things that God calls them to do with that. We've done interviews with people in the series called Gospel Patron Journals of 30 different people, different professions, where it's a written interview of 10 questions. And we're asking people things like, what are the dangers of wealth? Hmm. How do you treasure Jesus more than wealth and success? Because that's a real temptation. How do you make giving decisions when you can give to mercy ministries, Christian things, non-Christian things, you can give to hospitals, you can give to your church. How do you make some of those tough calls with giving decisions? What, are, what do you want to be remembered by? If you had to sum up, you know, at the end of your life, three words, what would those three words be? Well, we've mm. interviewed 30 different professionals around the world and asked them the same 10 questions to say, tell us your story. Mm-hmm. I think um, those who are gifted in giving need other examples. Just as if you're a worship leader, you'd watch YouTube videos of other worship leaders. Or if you're a preacher, you'd listen to other preachers, read old preachers, right? Right. We need examples and we need vision. And so putting those examples in front of people with that gifting means they'll grow. Mm. 
then at times, not all the time, but then at times, you put opportunity for them to act on that. Some within your church, and I think some without, some things without, some things in your city or some things globally that they can be a part of, and you will be amazed that they'll rise to the occasion. But we need to train them. We need to disciple them. And we've tried to create a library of resources at gospelpatrons.org that are aimed exactly at that, because we know it's not really within most churches' budget or purview to, to do that, to focus on that. So we've kind of right. tried to tried to take that on to create these resources that can spread to everyone everywhere. That's so great. And for those of you listening that, that lead a church plant or a small church and you think, boy, I wish I had a stewardship pastor on staff to hand all this off to, and it's just you, just go to your, to your website, right? Where can everybody find you to get more information? Yeah, gospelpatrons.org is our home base. Okay. And uh, so you can go there, you can click on the library tab, look at all the free content. We're not trying to get something from you. You can subscribe to our email list, you'll get a new piece of content every two weeks, but you can also poke around and see if there's something helpful for you there. Um, we're on Instagram, we're on Facebook at Gospel Patrons. Um, so that's TikTok. Not yet. Not Snapchat. Yet. Not yet. Be real. I'm not ready to dance on camera, so <laughs> I'll pass on that. All things I only know because of my kids. So. Yeah. Uh, John, this has been amazing, and uh, we went longer than I'd ever imagined because uh, I just, you know, I thought we'd hear a few stories, but man, you <laughs> crushed it. Thank you so much. This is such great content. I hope our listeners share this with others and pass this along to people because it's really, really helpful. So thank you for being here this weekend. Appreciate it. Thanks. Well, I hope you got as much out of that as I did. I really love my conversation with John. What a great guy and what great ideas in how to help your church be generous towards the things that matter for eternity. Uh, next week, boy, I tell you what, this is going to be uh, a first. Uh, I got a chance to interview an actual Charlie's angel. Cheryl Ladd is going to make her debut on the podcast and talk about her story of faith and an upcoming book she has coming out. I know you're going to love this, especially if you're anywhere my age or older, you remember Cheryl Ladd as a Charlie's angel. I technically was too young to be allowed to watch it in my home, but I had my ways. Anyway, Cheryl Ladd makes her appearance on the show and we're going to have a great conversation. So join us next week for that. As always, share this with a friend. You might have a pastor you know of that could really benefit from this conversation. Send it along to them. And as always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple. Learn.